0: There's a lot of very bright doctors, but we're so socialized into a particular way of viewing health and disease, and there's a lot of consequences for stepping outside of that. So it's a powerful paradigm, and there's medical-legal consequences, there's social consequences, uh, there's financial consequences. It's a lot of things that kind of keep us insurance consequences in terms of what will be paid for.
1: And I think people worry, too, that Maybe on some level that if people are finding spontaneous healing through means outside of the medical system, that they're going to forego medical care, right? And it's gonna, you know, people are gonna have maybe a false sense of hope or go go elsewhere and not right. seek medical care for things.
0: Yeah, and I but well, I think what you see in practical terms is that people just live in their lives. They will do a lot of both. People do respect medicine. Medicine is life saving. There's so many amazing treatments that really do save lives, but it's just not the whole story.
1: Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, let's get started with this week's episode. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, who is a board-certified psychiatrist, faculty at Harvard Medical School, and also holds a Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. Dr. Rediger has been fascinated by individuals who experience spontaneous healing from what is thought to be incurable illness, and has spent the past 15 years traveling to top hospitals and healing centers around the world to study this phenomenon. He's written about his findings in a new book called Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing, and we had the opportunity to sit down and talk about what he has learned in this episode. We talked about how he objectively collects data on this topic, the factors that play into spontaneous healing, and even some of the lessons he's learned from patients that have impacted his own life. Before we dive into the episode, we do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. Now, let's get started with the episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. And I am very excited to talk about a lot of the work you've been doing for, I guess, 15 plus years, 17 years um, in the area of spontaneous healing. So this is a concept that it happens a lot, but in medicine, we don't really know what to do with it or what to make of it. So this is the, the instance where someone has a diagnosis of maybe a terminal illness or an illness that's very serious they have a you know short shorter life to life expectancy and then instead of following that path and getting more sick and dying they actually get better and are even cured sometimes right. And in medicine, sometimes when this happens, we don't really know how to make sense of it, so we shrug our shoulders and we just sort of let it go. Right. But you have really dug in and you've said, well, what can we learn from these cases of spontaneous healing that we can maybe take away and use to try to help other patients? Right. So, I want to dig into all of that today. And I couldn't help but make the parallel between um, between the blue zones and what you're doing. So, um, Dan Buettner has studied... Communities around the world where people are living longer than right. anywhere else. And it makes sense, right? If we want to learn how to live longer and healthier, let's go to the places that right. are doing it and figure out how they do it. And so yes. you've done the same thing with if we want to get over or, you know, heal from these serious diseases or serious illnesses, let's go to the people who have done it, who've beat the odds and figure out what their secret is. Yep. So how did you first get interested in studying this and why have you stuck with it for so long?
0: Well, it's been a very personal journey. Uh, in 2002, I had just finished residency okay, and had taken uh, my joint appointment at Harvard Medical School and as a medical director at McLean Hospital as a psychiatrist and a nurse, an oncology nurse at Mass General came to me and asked me to help explain to her son that she had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and told Mm -hmm. that she had a matter of months to live. Pancreatic cancer is a devastating diagnosis. Mm -hmm. She then went to a healing center in Brazil, began calling me saying that she was seeing some amazing recoveries, Mm -hmm. felt that she herself was going through a, a recovery and thought I should look into it, and I said no.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> said why would I go to Brazil? That's a long way away. <laughs> so
0: I was very skeptical about anything real okay. going on, and I'm not very proud to say I was also uh, concerned about what my colleagues would think. Yeah, too, for honestly. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Nikki was stubborn. She began having people call me from around the country and elsewhere saying they had medical evidence for the recoveries. Mm. Did I want to hear their stories? (laughs) I said no. You
1: couldn't (laughs) avoid it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, I continued to uh, say no, but after a while, I did look at some of the letters that being sent to me, and I started to realize, wow, it looks like something might be going on here. Mm. So, long and short of it is I did go to Brazil. Okay. And that was in 2003. And that's where the journey started. It's gone a long ways since then. Mm -hmm. It's been 17 years. And I feel like I'm just starting to scratch the surface, really. Um, I mean, just hearing these stories, even today, Mm -hmm. more and more, I mean... But at least I've scratched the surface, right? <laughs>
1: right. So open the box <laughs> instead of just shrugging your shoulders. You're right. actually digging in now, right? So, so you mentioned Nikki and um and going to Brazil and seeing some some cases there. But where did you start to find these cases of spontaneous healing? And how many how many different people do you think you've talked to over the years?
0: So I've talked to well over a hundred people. Okay. Now the truth is. I have yet to give a talk publicly where there is not someone, Mm -hmm. uh, usually more than one person comes up to me afterwards and says, you need to talk to this patient, or you need to talk Mm -hmm. to my aunt, you need to talk to this person. So I think these stories are buried in our culture with Mm -hmm. no voice, really. Mm Mm-hmm. Not all the stories have medical evidence. Not all the stories are about incurable illnesses, but there are so many stories of healing that are buried out in our culture. A long time ago, years and years ago, I read an article that said that spontaneous remission occurs in one out of 100,000 cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that was repeated. I saw that statistic repeated Mm -hmm. in many articles. I went back and tried to trace where that original finding came from Mm -hmm. And it turned out it was just made up out of the blue decades ago. Mm,
1: And then replication.
0: (laughs) And just repeated. It's okay, yeah. But it was just made up out of the blue. Right. And I think it's uh, a lot more common than we realize. I've asked a room of doctors before, Mm -hmm. how many of you have seen a case of unexplained recovery that you didn't think was possible and it happened? Well, lots of doctors raised their hands Mm -hmm. and I asked how many had reported it. No one had reported Mm -hmm. it. And I was loath to report things myself mm-hmm. because, first of all, how are you going to get it published if you do all that work? Right. And if you do get it published, how are your colleagues going to view it? And so I think there's a lot of resistance mm-hmm. and things in the way that keep us from really realizing. And every time there's a major conference on these kinds of cases, you'll see a bump in the number of reports that then get published. Okay. And so you can trace through historically – for the last 80 years, when like when, in the I think it was the 50s, there was two conferences on spontaneous emission at Johns Hopkins, I okay. think something like that, and so then you'd see a bump in reports for a while. Mm-hmm. So it's like. It's clearly
1: there. People are seeing <laughs> them. They're just not not, not, not reporting not taking, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe there needs to be a better way, easier way for people to report that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> to collect right. all these, a database or something.
0: Yeah, we need a database. <laughs>
1: yeah, that would be really really interesting. But it's interesting the the whole concept of why people are afraid or maybe afraid to report them. Maybe they just don't just don't. They're so busy and they don't think much of it. I don't know. Right. But but it's interesting because you think. You know, just in science, you think you want to always be curious and always be asking questions and try to learn from your patients. But somehow you also, like you mentioned, you don't want to be thought of by your colleagues as going too far off the conventional path.
0: Right, true. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of very bright doctors, Mm -hmm. but we're so socialized into a particular way of viewing health and disease and there's a lot of consequences for stepping outside of that Mm -hmm. so it's a powerful paradigm and there's medical legal consequences there's social consequences uh, there's financial consequences Mm -hmm. it's a lot of things that kind of keep us Mm -hmm. insurance consequences in terms of what will be paid for
1: and i think people worry too that Maybe on some level that if people are finding spontaneous healing through means outside of the medical system, that they're going to forego medical care, right? And it's gonna, you know, people are gonna have maybe a false sense of hope or go go elsewhere and not right. seek medical care for things.
0: Yeah, and I but well, I think what you see in practical terms is that people just live in their lives. They will do a lot of both. Yeah, people do respect medicine. Mm-hmm. Medicine is life saving. There's so many amazing treatments that really do save lives, but it's just not the whole story.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, as you've been going through these cases, I know you look at them from a very objective lens and there are certain things, obviously, there's some common counter arguments like, oh, the di- maybe the diagnosis was wrong and this wasn't actually as serious of an illness as we thought, or. The placebo effect was playing a role or various other things. So, how have you sort of screened through the cases so that you're collecting your information in a way that's sort of objective?
0: So, I've had three criteria that I've held to. This has been not just a professional journey. It's been a very personal journey. Okay. So, I really needed to know what was true. Mm-hmm. And so... So, the criteria I set up for that were uh, threefold. Uh, One, the person had to have a genuinely incurable illness according to all that we currently understand in Western medicine. Mm -hmm. Number two, medically indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery. So, that meant I ended up looking at the really serious diseases that Mm -hmm. we know we don't know how to heal. Pancreatic cancer, glioblastoma multiforme, which is a devastating form of brain Mm -hmm. cancer, cancer. idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis,
1: mm-hmm.
0: ankylosing spondylitis, spondylitis, I mean a number of illnesses that we really do not know how to heal. Mm-hmm. So, And then the third criteria uh, was that there couldn't be some other explanation for how they got better, such as an experimental medication
1: okay.
0: that maybe we didn't know its mm-hmm. effectiveness. Mm-hmm. So those, those three criteria were very important to me to adhere to. So there's so many cases that have come to me over the years that may have been great healings, but I couldn't use them for my research because they didn't fall within that narrow set of categories.
1: Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So after looking at these cases in great detail, I know you've identified some common common Themes among them, and there's no, you know, surprise, surprise, there's no silver bullet that is the answer, but there's a lot of different factors that play into spontaneous healing. So, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some of those. And I know you spend a lot of time in the first half of your book talking about the immune system and how big of a role the immune system plays, obviously, in our healing. And I think so many times, probably people in the general public think about our immune system as fighting off infections but there is so much more that our immune system is doing on a day-to-day basis right. um, whether it's fight you know fighting off cancer whether it's just helping to reduce the level of inflammation in our bodies right um so what are some of the things that you've learned that that people are doing that have these spontaneous healings that help them to build a strong immune system
0: yeah it's a great question what i've come to believe is that in contrast to traditional medicine where we specialize in body parts. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a psychiatrist, you specialize in the brain. If you're a cardiologist, you specialize in the heart. If you're a gastroenterologist, you specialize in the yep. enteric system, etc. Well, it turns out and what's really exciting about what's developing in medicine now, medicine's catching up to this whole need to stand back and look at the big picture and realize we don't have a heart problem, a blood pressure problem, a diabetes problem, a cancer problem or an autoimmune problem, we have at a deeper level an inflammation mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. And if you can decrease the inflammation in your body, you're going to have a whole different situation. So, that means if you want to lower the inflammation in your body, you need to heal your immune system because inflammation is an immune system thing. Mm-hmm. And so and so learning how to to set up the superpowers of the immune system with all these brilliant cells and cell subtypes that are hyper-specialized and want to do their job crisply and efficiently, Mm -hmm. they can only do that if we give them the proper conditions. And so, the people I've studied, they do things like avoid toxins. Mm -hmm. They really change what they put into their bodies. Uh, They... uh, flush their lymphatic system regularly with lots of water. Mm -hmm. They don't over-medicate, spend time with people they love who make them laugh, and they get plenty of rest. There's all kinds of things along those lines. And I think they end up empowering their immune system rather than what we often do historically in medicine, which is suppress the immune system.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Immune suppressants uh, or antipyretics to get rid of a fever. Mm -hmm. It turns out that animals... When they have a fever, because they're ill, they don't try to get rid of the fever. They move to a warmer spot, which probably elevates their body temperature more, more. and unleashes the superpowers of the immune system more.
1: Which is amazing. In your book, you talked about some early experiments where, or I guess, observations where um, someone would get a fever or get an infection for right. some reason or another. And then shortly after that, they would see a spontaneous remission yes. of the cancer and the thought about what that fever was doing to turn on their immune system and help them heal.
0: Yes. Yeah. When it was Coley, William Coley, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was at St. Luke's Presbyterian in New York. Uh, he started to realize that sometimes when a person got a fever, it would kick the cancer out. It, the fever trying to fight an infection would mm-hmm. unleash the superpowers of the immune system and then up resolving the tumor, which is an amazing story. And we're just, it was actually a case of spontaneous remission that caused the whole line of research at NIH that now is starting this whole line of immunotherapies and everything mm-hmm. else, which itself is a whole incredible story.
1: Right. And I think you mentioned, it, it was something that sort of tri- trickled off the attention towards it trickled off. I can't remember s- the the history, but he had done one experiment, I think, too, right. after making the observation that he had another patient who right. was end stage, right, didn't have much time to live, and he actually gave him an infection to right. induce a fever, right, um, which was very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> right,
0: exactly. Yeah, it's a fascinating history around this stuff, but yeah. he it did start off his career of then beginning to develop these really exciting immunotherapies, mm-hmm. which are starting to gain ground now.
1: Mm-hmm. How about I know you? You know people talk about nutrition all the time, yeah. And, and especially when people get a diagnosis of something, something like cancer, there is a lot of emphasis on eating a certain way. But there's right. a lot of different approaches to nutrition, obviously, um, ranging from ketogenic diets, which you talked about one example with Pablo Kelly in your book, right? Um, and I've had um, Tom Seafried on the podcast before too, talking about ketogenic diets and metabolic theory of cancer. Versus all the way going to like very completely plant based diets. Um, And so you've seen, obviously, people have um, spontaneous healings with all kinds of diets. Right. So, what are some of the, you know, are there any themes that you've identified there or anything that you think is important as far as nutrition?
0: Yeah. It's a big topic. And I think you're right in med school. We are given a lot of misinformation, Mm -hmm. traditionally, about nutrition.
1: Or no information. (laughs) Or no information. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very little. Right. Yes. And you're right. There was all these different ways that people did change what they were eating. Mm -hmm. But there were some really very common themes. They eliminated processed foods, by and large. Mm -hmm. They eliminated sugar, by -hmm. and large. You know, over 100 years ago, the average person... The average American ate four pounds of sugar a year. That's what it was. But now statistics are that we eat, on average, 154 pounds of sugar a year. Sugar is in everything. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole complicated history about how we got here with that. And our bodies were not made to handle that level of sugar. And I think sugar causes these microvascular uh little bits of damage you know mm-hmm. and that starts the whole process of inflammation Inflation. and mm-hmm. and then the immune system spends all this energy trying to repair the the little cuts mm-hmm. and that starts the cycle of scarring and mm-hmm. making the cardiovascular system stiff and down the road as a symptom of that you have cholesterol but that's mm-hmm. a symptom it's not the cause
1: right
0: so So yeah, eliminating processed foods, uh, eliminating sugar, eliminating refined flours seems to be a big one. Some people gave up meat, Mm -hmm. some did not. The ones who ate meat, some of them said to me, it's just important to make sure that the animals were happy when they were alive, that they weren't uh, living with bodies flooded with stress hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, Grass-fed, we now know, gives your healthier fats. Mm-hmm. Um, so and not having chemicals in your food seems to be important mm-hmm. in your, in your meat. So
1: it seems like it it's, it's so complicated I think and people get so polarized about nutrition but it, like you like you're saying yeah. there's so many principles that are very basic and intuitive yeah. about it, you know, eating real food. Exactly. Um, not eating refined food, refined sugars, processed right. foods. Um, If we stick to that, that's probably going to get us the majority of the benefit. Yeah,
0: I mean, these people that I spent all this time talking to, they weren't counting calories. They weren't looking at proportions of how much of one food group Mm -hmm. was on their plate versus another. They weren't spending a lot of time with that. They were eating food that was nutritionally dense. Mm -hmm. What are the foods that have a lot of nutrition packed in those foods? That's simple. Yeah, It was a hard transition for me because I didn't realize how addicted I was to sugar.
1: Yes, like all of us. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> right?
0: But once you make that transition, yeah. and once you face how addicted you are, yeah. then the world opens up. I mean, you feel better. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things you don't even have to think about anymore in terms of health, mm-hmm. in my experience, and what I seem to see. and So,
1: so speaking of, you just started to, to mention a little bit about Tracking. I just imagine someone tracking in an app their macronutrients or things like that. So <laughs> stress is another big thing, yes, and it I is. think about how that maybe adds some stress. Um, but but you talk a lot about the parasympathetic nervous system and how important it is to do things that build up that parasympathetic response. Right. And so, what are some of the things that you have learned from these cases that people are doing that seem to help them build that parasympathetic tone?
0: Well, I've learned that a lot of us are living in chronic fight, flight, or freeze mm-hmm. than we realize. I think when that occurs, we aren't able to heal properly because we're flooding our body too much of the time with stress hormones, with cortisol, with norepinephrine, with adrenaline. Mm-hmm. And we know that the immune system, the these brilliant cells become numb, And they can't do the proper signaling and that sort of thing when they're constantly under the impact of cortisol, for example. So the vagus nerve is the superhighway of the parasympathetic response, which is the opposite system in our bodies. It's the healing system. It's Mm -hmm. the connection system. Um, And so when we can recognize that we're in fight or flight and get into a more relaxed Connected state, connected with ourselves and others, is a different world physiologically. It turns off these stress hormones. The stress hormones are great if you got a tiger bearing mm-hmm. down on you,
1: right? But
0: but you want to <laughs> not all the time. But it's not good if you're sitting in traffic or if you have screaming <laughs> children in the house. Or right. you got to find a different way to relate to all of that. The vagus nerve is what causes you to smile when you make eye contact with mm-hmm. somebody, and so it makes your eyes. Um, squint and make connection with somebody mm-hmm. when you look at them in the eye and and that's all the vagus nerve and those micro moments just elicit a cocktail of really different hormones it's not the stress hormones, it's oxytocin which is a connection bonding molecule, uh, serotonin, which is an antidepressant, uh, dopamine, the pleasure pathway. It's just a Mm -hmm. very different physiology that you create, and it's a healing physiology. Mm -hmm. So the vagus nerve is about connection, but it's not just with those that we love and have a very close relationship. It's with someone we meet and have a 10-second conversation with in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. Barbara Fredrickson at UNC Chapel Hill does brilliant research around The vagus nerve and the parasympathetic and these micro connections of positive connection with others and how important it is physiologically. Mm -hmm. And the more you do it, the more physiological effect you get. And it's an amazing piece of research.
1: It's amazing too, because I think so many People think about okay, I need to do mindfulness or meditation or deep breathing or spend this this time doing you know ten minutes a day or whatever it is to build up my parasympathetic system. But actually, you know, just like you said, that that human connection is such an important part of it too that I think is often neglected.
0: I think you're right. It's the research seems to support it's a massive deal.
1: Mm-hmm. Very very interesting. Well, so the next theme that I want to bring up that you talk about that you've seen through these um these cases has to do with faith healing and maybe energy healing. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> we'll get into it. But I think that's what brought you actually here to Cleveland is you had met a doctor when you were on Dr. Oz, Dr. Right. Asam Nimi who was doing some sort of heal faith healing. He doesn't like to call it faith healing, but here in Cleveland, Ohio, and after hearing from some of his patients, you decided to come out here and meet more of the patients and look at their cases. Right. So what was it when you first met Dr. Nimi or heard about some of his patients that, that you thought, wow, there's something here. I need to learn more.
0: Yeah. So in getting to know Dr. Nimi and his wife, Kathy, uh, and hearing the stories and then seeing some of the evidence for the stories we brought to the Doctor Oz show, I was the medical expert. Okay. So I reviewed some of the evidence and and was blown away by some of the stories and decided I need to look into it more deeply. At that point, I'd been looking at some uh, places around the world, and especially in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And Brazil's a very different country in terms of their assumptions about the mind and the body and the relationship of the soul to the body, and Mm -hmm. really do believe that illness begins in the soul and eventuates in the body. And Dr. Namie is a physician, an engineer, and yet was working with people around spiritual healing. And and so he understood as, as a physician the importance of medical mm-hmm. um, data. Mm-hmm. And so it's a perfect spot to try to understand this from a Western perspective mm-hmm. as a way to walk into this whole massive issue from a different
1: mm-hmm. viewpoint. And for some more background on Dr. Nimi, so he – was trained as a surgeon and an anesthesiologist, was working as an anesthesiologist, and then basically really realized his true purpose and calling to do this type of healing and to bridge this gap between medicine and faith. And so now he has a practice where he has essentially, he does two different things. In his medical practice, he's using a lot of, energy and microcurrents. And then he also does healing services in churches and other areas around the country where he's praying with patients and people are experiencing spontaneous healings in both, both settings. Right. And he really thinks he, he, you know, the reason why I laugh about calling it faith healing is because I don't think he likes calling it that because (laughs) he's very, um, you know, he understands that there, this is, their science behind what he's doing. Right. Which I think, like you said, is a very interesting perspective to come at this from.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big topic because it is, that's what's brilliant about science. Science walks into things that seem mysterious and then begins to unpack the mechanisms and asks, how does this happen? Mm -hmm. So now birds flying across the sky is still a magnificent mystery, but we also understand the Bernoulli principle now and we can make airplanes. <laughs> right, <laughs> so. right. But when we first saw it, it was like, wow. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> That's so right. interesting. Yes, to think about maybe when we think about this 100 years from now, it will be very different.
0: Right. Once yeah. we
1: maybe understand more about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, think about 300 years ago, if, got, if you got plopped into this day and time now, Mm-hmm from 300 years ago you'd think wow this is a miraculous world these guys are living in <laughs> right right
1: <laughs> um so one of i think d- one of dr nemi's patients that was on the dr oz show and that you had talked to um was actually a physician herself Correct. Patricia kane yeah and she was she had a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis right and so with her case I think that was one of the original ones that sort of sparked your interest. Right. Um, but how do, you, how do you make sense of her, the healing that she experienced?
0: Well, that's a great question. And I don't know the best answer to that. Mm-hmm. I think that my efforts to walk in and kind of begin mapping this whole terrain mm-hmm. is a privilege. And I have started to scratch the surface. But there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And mm-hmm. we need a lot more people to begin looking at this because – there's a lot more to understand.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I mean, hearing Dr. Kane tell her story is incredible and there's a lot to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And at the end of the day, you end up feeling like, wow, I still don't understand still how don't this understand. happened, but it did. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: So much that we don't know. Right. So much that we don't know. But at least. I guess with her story, she had a, actually a biopsy that right. showed oh, yeah. the diagnosis. So, it's a very clear-cut yeah. diagnosis. And right. it's a disease that people don't don't recover, recover from. from. You don't see right. people with fibrotic lungs and then normal lungs. And right. that's what happened to her. Yeah,
0: so. your lungs turned to cardboard and you die. She was at okay. one point sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day because her body could no longer exchange oxygen. Wow. And so, she was close to death. hmm and she's now, in retrospect, so grateful for the illness that she then became a, a doctor doing house visits with very ill people wow. for a long time. And she started an email list called Doc's Daily Chuckle because hmm. she thinks humor is such an important part of getting better and wow. all that. So it's quite a story, and and it's so you see that so often with these people uh, whose spontaneous emissions is they're grateful for the illness because it changed so fundamentally their relationship with themselves in mm-hmm. the world, they see themselves in the world so differently now. and mm-hmm. it's, an, it's like sometimes these people, these stories, they change so much that they will change their name or you will see a photograph of them while they were ill and a photograph of who they are now. People will walk down the same street where they lived their whole lives and people won't recognize them. Wow. I mean, it's a deep change in identity and mm-hmm. beliefs and how they are positioned in the world.
1: Yeah, and that that concept of identity is one that you talk a lot about too. Where right. so much of maybe the process of healing has to do with taking a deep look at our identity and right. and where it comes from, and maybe making a change in right. what we identify with. So, can you talk maybe maybe first just how where does our identity come from in the first place? Because yeah. I know there can be some negative experience you talk about aces negative experiences that can form our identity that then kind of get stuck with us through life if we don't take a closer look at them um so where what are some of the things that contribute to our our identity and then when you get to a point where you're you have to kind of stop and relook at things yeah how you might approach that
0: yeah i think we all grow up and we all make interpretations of the experiences that we have and we make interpretations of what we're told Mm -hmm. by our parents, by kids on the playground, by colleagues at work, by bosses. Mm -hmm. We interpret the different things that we go through and sometimes people go through a lot of trauma. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of hidden trauma that drives illness, I think.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And we make these interpretations about our value and worth as human beings a lot of times. Some of these interpretations and beliefs are true and empowering, and some of these interpretations are false and disempowering, and they form our conscious and subconscious world and our perceptions of our value and of the kind of universe we live in. Is it a friendly or an unfriendly universe? And these beliefs are unexamined by and large. And I think if we are giving our minds and our bodies and our lives mixed messages because of this inner Um, set of true and false beliefs, Mm -hmm. it makes sense that we're going to end up with mixed results when it comes to our health and our life and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I think what I've, is I've watched people um, go through these stories and tell me what changed. They talk about really changing their relationship with themselves one of the early stories, and I tell the story in Cured, about Jan, who was end-stage lupus when she went to Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in her heart. It was in her brain. Her doctors, a doctor actually went with her, convinced she wouldn't even make the plane flight down uh, without dying. She yeah. was very close to death. And she got a lot better, came off of, I think it was 17 medications that she'd been on for decades, mm-hmm. including 100 milligrams of prednisone a day. Wow. She went off of that, I think, in less than a week. Oh, my. <laughs> which I, I, <laughs> Don't advise. <laughs> I did not advise. I said, that's dangerous. <laughs> and, uh, but she got really well, and I saw the picture of who she had been. Mm-hmm. And I would not have believed it's the same woman that I was wow. talking to. She went back to Idaho to a toxic marriage and toxic work environment, got ill again, Mm. went back to Brazil, got better. Now, this is a disease you don't get better from. Mm -hmm. She got better the second time and decided she needed to get the message, and she left the marriage and the work situation. And she is just this vital, happy lady living in northern um, Idaho now, Mm -hmm. sends me pictures, and, it's just, and she's changed her name like many people do, a change okay. of identity for her. In part, that meant changing her name. Wow. And she says that she walks down the street in Idaho and people she's known her entire life, they don't recognize her. It's wow. just an incredible story. I but she has a very different experience of who she is now. hmm Sees herself through different eyes.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned that this whole process has been a personal one for you, too. Right. And you talk about some of that in the book. Right. And you talk about some of your own experiences. You said you grew up in an Amish setting, an Amish family. Um, you had some adverse experiences right. as a child as well. Can you talk about what that process has been like for you?
0: Yeah. I mean, it made this a very personal sort of driver mm-hmm. uh, because I needed some answers. I grew up as a confused, hurt kid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we, My parents left the Amish area when I was two years old, but they left more outwardly than inwardly. Okay. So I grew up without TV. Uh, TV and radio were viewed as evil influences from the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were some very good things about growing up in such a rural environment. My parents grew the wheat that they then used, the stone wheat grinder to make great bread and mm-hmm. muffins and pancakes, and I ate a ton of all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't eat a lot of processed foods, and I think that was very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I was living in a really different culture at home than I was experiencing in public school every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very confusing to be studying science and math and that sort of thing, and then at home, you know, you're taught that the Bible is the only valid source of knowledge at all, and mm-hmm. and I was confused. Yeah, so as I,
1: anyone would be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I broke away and, and went to college, and that began to open up a whole new world to me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, someone very dear to me died mm-hmm. on the same day as my grandfather, and um, it was a massive loss. My life kind of ended there, and mm-hmm. um, that started a process, it kind of opened up the Pandora's box of really deep questions I needed to get an answer to. So I went to seminary, mm-hmm. and seminary was a fabulous place to just explore questions. I had no plans to become a minister. Mm-hmm. It was way too conflicted to do anything like that. But to ask questions and just really go deep into primary text was a great thing for me. So I spent three years studying purely theology and philosophy of science. Wow. Convinced myself that science is a fabulous thing, so I went to med school.
1: <laughs> of course, <laughs> but what a great, um, what a great path leading you to where you are now with all of that, yeah. with all of that background.
0: Seminary was a fabulous preparation for med school hmm. and for being a physician. Okay, because and we even while I was in residency, we started this brown bag group for lunch where we could just ask the questions that are really important for being a physician and a Mm -hmm. psychiatrist, but you never get a chance to ask when Mm -hmm. you're in med school and residency. And it's a really great, seminary was a great place to just ask questions. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think that's one of the, the thing, I guess, when you talk about looking at identity or looking at deeper underlying, what is your meaning or purpose for being here? It's a question that a lot of people don't really think to stop and ask until something big happens in their life that forces them to ask that question um is there i guess do you have any insight or advice for how to how to start that investigation or how say say you don't have a good sense of your your meaning or purpose where do you start
0: that's a good question i think I think as human beings, it's easier for us to avoid things until we can't mm-hmm. avoid them any longer. Yes,
1: <laughs> until they're so, just screaming in our face. <laughs> right, exactly. So I
0: think we often ignore the small whispers that uh-huh. maybe there's something you should look at here. Yes. And, 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 till, and so sometimes I think a lot of us, myself included, we go through a major crisis and our mm-hmm. life kind of melts down in the way that we wanted it to be and finally we're willing to to look at something. And that's how this whole thing for me is I had questions I needed answers to Mm -hmm. because I was in a lot of pain and I wanted to heal some things. And it turned out to be the massive gift that it was.
1: Wow, and was that going through seminary, was that the main um, mode that helped you to answer those questions or was there anything else that you found helpful in the process?
0: Oh, I think, I don't know what the best way to answer that is I think seminary was just a gift mm-hmm. in that way I went through med school reading theology and philosophy of science mm-hmm. still cuz I just, still was just, just trying in to your answer the question <laughs> Yeah right <laughs> But but what's funny about that is when you're studying something that has really deep personal meaning mm-hmm. the other stuff falls into place It's so true It really happens and okay. so so that worked um so I I think Continuing to ask good questions. One of my uh, professors, my mentor in seminary said, the most important thing when you're doing research is to ask really good questions Mm -hmm. and to get better at the questions, to really improve the quality of your questions. That was just a great thing. Mm -hmm. And so one doesn't have to be in seminary to try to understand what is the question underneath my daily life. Underneath all of these distractions, underneath all of this, what is it that's really bothering me? You know, Mm -hmm. what is it I really need to understand here? And I think listening to these people for years as I have, and then going from listening to people with these amazing recoveries, and then going back into the medical hospital Mm -hmm. and the psychiatric hospital and listening to these stories and seeing that, wow, we're teaching these people to do really different things than what these people with remarkable recoveries are doing. Yeah you start to realize how we need to help people understand their value, Mm -hmm. to see themselves with compassion, to stop taking care of everyone else and begin paying attention to their own well-being, their own dreams, the things that really help them come alive, that put a light in their eyes. The most common thing that these people with recoveries have told me over the years is it took an illness for them to wake up and realize they needed to stop taking care of everyone else, to stop responding to the perceived expectations of others, Mm -hmm. and begin paying attention to the needs of their own deeper life self or soul you know Mm -hmm. they'll use different words to talk about that Mm -hmm. but they it's so funny to me that a person can get diagnosed with a deadly cancer and that will be a relief to them Mm -hmm. and they'll say wow now i don't have to be a doctor anymore because my parents wanted me to be Mm -hmm. i have six months to live but i'm going to do what i want to do now or a mom who has all these kids and she's been taking care of her wife or been taking care of her kids and her husband and all these people. And then she gets diagnosed with a terrible illness. And it's like, oh, now I can do something to take care of my own self. And I have the permission because I have this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Those are astonishing statements to make. Yeah. And it shows how we socialize people
1: mm-hmm.
0: into their roles my friend Gabor mate, a physician in British Columbia, says, "If you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you, mm. and I think there's so much to that I agree so
1: yeah, absolutely um and and important that you bring up too that with identity how like you said, different roles reinforce that identity even on a subconscious level, something yes. that you're not aware of, but like right. you talked about how being Sort of brought up in this Amish household, how a lot of the way other people treated you just reinforced some beliefs maybe you had about yourself on a subconscious level. That yeah. until you left and went out on your own to college, you didn't realize right. how big an impact that was having.
0: Completely, yeah. It's a. I had an amazing experience. I'd worn these homemade clothes my whole life. Home, I haircut from home, mm-hmm. which was pretty ragged. And <laughs> ugly glasses and then you change all that and walk into a college campus and people Uh treat you completely differently Uh i knew i was exactly the same person the same misfit inside but But, uh, i wasn't perceived that way all of a sudden
1: right based on your outward appearance or based on like you said your role depending on what your perceived role is right and so interesting like you said that that people often it's so hard for people to find the permission to Take care of themselves, or to listen right. to what is really important to them, yes. until you know they're faced with their mortality or something right. really big happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think that part of my job as a physician is to help people learn how to be selfish about that, mm-hmm. because people will say, "Well, if I was going to do that, that would be selfish, mm-hmm. because my grandmother needs me, or this my my husband needs me, or or whatever," and it turns out that maybe they need you to some degree but not the extent that you are putting into all that not to the extent of ignoring your own well-being your Mm -hmm. own deeper longings so an authentic life is a big deal
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely um i want to go back just for a minute to talk about um dr nimi and some of the the yeah. faith and energy healing because I got a little bit off track, but there were some other things I <laughs> wanted to talk about. Um, I probably specifically, hope that <laughs> No, it's great. Specifically, um, so the, especially with the the energy healings that he's doing in his office and using the microcurrents and he uses acupuncture meridians. Um, and you talked a little bit in your book about how you, like trying to make sense of that and you talked to a couple of physicists about how, you know, the the information that's coming out now about quantum physics and the electromagnetic fields around our bodies and how even the fields around our bodies and our, our hearts interact with the fields of other people that we're interacting with. And so obviously, like you said, we're just scratching the surface (laughs) with all of this stuff. This is very um, foreign to, I think most physicians. Um, But one thing that Dr. Nimi said once made a lot of sense to me that, that he said, you know, in medicine we are so focused on the biochemistry of what's happening in our bodies, and there's this whole physical world, um, electromagnetic world that's all around us all the time that we don't really even we don't really even think about or pay attention to when it comes to how that can impact our healing or impact our bodies. And so that really made me think about, wow, there's maybe this whole other dimension to medicine and healing. And you think back to other Eastern traditions or acupuncture that have, you know, they've been doing for such a long time. And wow, there's maybe this whole other aspect of healing that we are not even touching in most of conventional medicine. Um, So what have you how do you how do you make sense of that or what have you learned from the physicists that you've talked to and trying to <laughs> trying to shed some light on it?
0: Yeah, well, I do part of one chapter on that in the book mm-hmm. and it was a real struggle for me because it's like opening up this massive Pandora's box mm-hmm. because, you know, there are some physicists that will just simply say the material world doesn't exist.
1: You know it's <laughs> I mean? like, what do you do with <laughs> yeah, that? <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 I mean, what do you do about that as a person and as a physician, you know? I mean, <laughs> cool. that's what we work with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So, the physicists that I have talked to, um, there's a lot of different ways you can go with that, but they have said they don't like the way the word quantum physics is used in the popular culture. Okay. And so I think that it would be a good idea for more physicists to help us begin to think about this in yes. the popular culture. Yes. <laughs> because we need
1: to start to understand their right. brain, what's going on in their But brain. But
0: what we know is that quantum physics has been now around for 80 years. Mm-hmm. It's not a theory, it's indisputable fact. That has been proven over and over again in thousands of experiments. And every time they move up a grade uh, from the subatomic into larger and larger pieces of reality, which is still pretty small reality where (laughs) they're at because these are really expensive experiments. Mm It's still being validated. And so it used to be that, for example, I think through the Copenhagen School of Quantum Mechanics, you can make this dualism and pretend that the subatomic world operates by different rules than Mm -hmm. the physical world that we can see and touch, that Mm -hmm. we live in, that we are aware of. And that distinction is breaking down, it looks like, uh, where we can't really make that distinction. It looks like Mm -hmm. every step up that you take, it still follows Mm -hmm. those Rules of quantum physics, which is why we now have physicists saying the material world doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so well, it well. means that I don't think we're, I mean, basically what you're taught in graduate school in physics, as I understand it, is don't ask questions, just do the math. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I think we're taught in med school is don't ask questions, just do the problem sets.
1: <laughs>
0: right, right. <laughs> so it's because there's a lot to memorize. Right. But I think what's true is that there are some younger physicists now that are getting more uncomfortable with not asking the big questions, mm-hmm. which is a good sign.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's also, I think just doing the math also prepares us. As a culture, to slowly get ready over time to begin engaging these deeper questions, because they're really, really big issues. Mm-hmm. If the material world doesn't exist in the way we think it does, then that's a lot to think. Right,
1: implications of that. A lot of implications <laughs> of that.
0: But I, but the world is as these physicists and engineers apply the math, it's changing the world. It's driving digital. Uh, is creating a digital world mm-hmm. with a very different set of assumptions. And so quantum physics has a very different understanding of the relationship between mind and body and has a really different understanding of the power of consciousness in the individual. And so instead of having this Newtonian world of traditional medicine where there's nothing to do with the mind and the body have nothing to do with each other, by using the math and creating this digital world, we're getting a world that's becoming much more fluid and so everything's slowly changing and preparing us for the next steps i think mm-hmm. so now our smartphone is kind of becoming the tricorder of star trek mm-hmm. and it's democratizing medicine radically and we will have more and more data very quickly that will help us take charge of our health and that is slowly happening and so all of these things are coming together and it's going to massively transform medicine, mm-hmm. and it's I think the millennials be... will help drive that. Frankly,
1: yeah, it's going to be very interesting. <laughs> you said lots, <laughs> lots to learn, but it will be very interesting for sure. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a couple things just talking about you know your personal experience. You said you realized how addicted you were to sugar. <laughs> Anything else that you've as you've gone through this process of learning from these patients that that have had an impact on you that you've changed in your own life.
0: Yeah. I think there's so many things have changed. I'm not even fully conscious of all that. Mm -hmm. By just simply changing what I ate, I lost 37 or 38 pounds. Wow. And so there's that. My numbers were going up. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd been through a lot of things when I was younger that kind of created, I think, a pretty, uh, I was in fight or flight a lot Mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. And... Boy, you look back at the pictures from 10 years ago and 20 years ago, I was a different person. Mm -hmm. And I think being exposed to these stories, you know, as doctors, we're taught to not give false hope, and I think that's good. Mm -hmm. But there's this whole other side of it is where people need grounded ethical hope that's rooted in medical evidence. Mm -hmm. And being around these stories and then going back into the medical hospital and the psychiatric hospital and seeing... That these people are dealing with the same issues but we're not giving them the pathways to mm-hmm. heal the mm-hmm. way these people with remarkable recoveries have yes. done and that's i think worked such a difference on my own psyche and my own physiology that yeah you know, i my numbers were going up for you know blood pressure mm-hmm. and cholesterol and all those kinds of things now I don't think I'm going to have to deal with a whole lot of illnesses that most of my peers, if they don't change something, are just going to deal with. And they're Mm -hmm. going to call it aging. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say, those are preventable diseases. They're lifestyle illnesses. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I just think that being around these stories and these people Mm -hmm. is just not going to be an issue. So now I run. Now I eat really differently. Now I think differently about myself and the world we live in. Mm -hmm. So,
1: and I think what you said about hope is very interesting too, because it's so true. And even going back to the identity piece, so many people that take on their illness as their identity because it becomes right. such a huge part of their day to day life. And so, not even knowing who they are without that illness. Yeah. Um, but having having that sort of light at the end of the tunnel or that hope to say, "Oh, someone else has been through this. They got better. Right. I can be there too." And you talk – you gave a couple examples even in sports, and that's something that I, I think to CrossFit for the way that athletes have pushed the envelope over the past 10 years of oh. CrossFit competition where, you know, when my first competed in 2010, we were – The weights that we were lifting were nothing compared. Now you've got 15 people at every gym on the corner lifting those weights. And every year, once athletes see what's possible, the next year, everyone else is doing it. Or they put out, you know, a a new movement in our yearly open competition and people think they can't do it and then they do it or they right. overcome it they see their friend doing it and then that's suddenly right. it's a possibility that's right and it's amazing what that can do just it changing is. that mindset and the, the realm of possibility what that can do for
0: yes. your athletic
1: performance but for your healing as absolutely.
0: well absolutely and i think that what's going on in sports is just a great example of what needs to happen in health mm-hmm. because You're right. Somebody sees something on the internet and think, "Oh, if he can do that, then I can do this." Right? You know, and it is contagious. And I can't tell you how many people will hear these inspiring stories, and they'll think, "Wow, well, I can do this then."
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so I think that's how change begins.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, very exciting. We need to get these stories out to more people.
0: We do, and to have the people themselves tell the stories Mm -hmm. is really important because they will say something in a way that no academic can Mm -hmm. and a person will listen to that and they will catch something Mm -hmm. kind of indirectly that's so powerful and so authentic and there's no way i could replicate that so Mm -hmm. i think getting these stories out there is really big
1: i completely agree i completely agree and things like you see more shared medical appointments people being Uh, able to relate to other people who are going through similar um conditions and helping each other along the way i think there's so much power in that um, what are some things if we can just sit here, I know we're just scratching the surface, but if we can sit here and people who are listening, maybe they're facing a serious condition, maybe a right. loved one is, maybe they're not, but they just want to, you know, improve, sure, their own yeah, well-being. improve their own overall being and hopefully prevent something from coming along down the road. Any advice, just general, I guess we're not giving medical advice here on the podcast, but what are some things that you've learned from these cases that you think we can take home as as lessons.
0: Yeah. Well, we've talked about the four pillars, which I think are yeah. really important. And I think focusing on- And remind
1: a, us four pillar, the four pillars, what those are. Yeah.
0: So the four pillars of healing and well-being and vitality, as mm-hmm. I understand it, are you need to heal your relationship with nutrition. Okay. And that's not about fad diets or restriction. It's really about giving your body the good stuff. But it's also how you do it. I mean, if you change- make changes with nutrition from a place of fear, that's not going to work. You've still got all that cortisol secretion. It needs to be seen. Whatever changes you make need to be seen as an opportunity, not as another burden. Mm-hmm. The last thing people need is another burden, especially so, when you're ill. So true. So it needs to be, whether whatever the decision, it has to be an opportunity mm-hmm. and see it that way. The second uh, pillar is about healing our immune system. Mm-hmm and uh, helping get all these brilliant cells and cell subtypes working at the crisp and efficient best mm-hmm. rather than doing uh, what we often do, which I think is provide them with a bunch of toxins and mm-hmm. not adequate rest and all kinds of things that make them sluggish mm-hmm. and misfiring and all that. And the third thing is healing our stress response. Some stress is good. We all need challenge stress to grow
1: Mm -hmm. CrossFit
0: can be a great challenge stress because it helps you realize you're capable of more than you realized. Mm It helps you reach into a higher self. But that's a very different kind of stress than if you're leaving work every day, feeling depleted and not Mm -hmm. knowing your value, or if you're in a toxic relationship. So challenge stress is good. Toxic stress um, is going to leave you in chronic fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And you're going to to need to either change your environment or change your response to the environment. And then the fourth pillar is really healing your identity, which is healing your beliefs about your value, seeing yourself not with judgment or criticism, but with compassion and understanding, and getting a life that helps you come alive, where you know your value, you know that you matter, and you bring something important,
1: so. Four pillars, that's perfect. Well, um, I want to start wrapping up. So there's three questions that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. Okay. The first one is, what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health?
0: I'm a big believer in Fitbit. Okay, excellent. And what <laughs> right. do you
1: use it for mostly? Is it the steps or the sleep? Or
0: I like to pay a lot of attention to um, my exercise. Okay, And I like watching my heart rate over time. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good end to see. And um, and I also make sure I get four liters a day of water. And that sort of thing. I flush my lymphatic system regularly with water. And I think that detoxes a lot of things. So and make sure my rest is good. Mm -hmm. So I do that. Um, That's probably three things. I love that. I need a a contemplative life. And Mm -hmm. so I'm very busy people often ask, how do you get all that stuff done? I mean, the person I always compare myself is Dr. Namie because he is the only <laughs> other person I know that works the kind of hours oh I do. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yes. He's but, working
1: from early in the morning till, I don't, I've you know been in his office at nine, ten 10, right. at night. Oh yeah. Every single day, six days a week. I know. Yeah.
0: And so, And so, but I think he lives a contemplative life, so he's getting fed from a different place. Mm-hmm. Even though he has very long days and hours, I think that if you're fed from a different place, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not depleting you. Mm -hmm. It's energizing. And I think different things feed different people. Yes. Someone, one person needs yoga, another person needs a really active workout. Mm -hmm. But there's different ways to change our mental state that then affects our mental state the rest Mm -hmm. of the time.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there anything, my next question is one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it? Yes, many. <laughs> <laughs> That's honest.
0: is <laughs> yeah, yeah. always a temptation. Of course. I always find it easy to make exceptions <laughs> and not count those. <laughs> of course, we all do. Especially
1: here, they have all these beautiful homemade desserts. <laughs> exactly, yeah.
0: And I also am very aware that some of the people I've studied could have eaten cat food and still gotten better. Oh, yeah. So, so. <laughs> you
1: never know. Right.
0: Like Dr. Kane's a good example. She didn't change a thing about, about what about she it, ate, yet. and she still got better. So it's... I think for me, I I view nutrition as a doorway, Mm -hmm. but.
1: um, It's not the end all.
0: When you you activate the higher centers, it becomes less and less ideal, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. What does a healthy life look like to you?
0: One where a person knows their value and their purpose, and they're very committed to a life that feels authentic to them, and where they take care of that inner fire so that it's not being depleted by all the managing of expectations of are doing for others.
1: I love it. Wonderful. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. This has been great. And thank you for all the work that you have done and that I know you'll continue to do and we'll continue to get these stories out there.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Awesome. Hey there, thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I always like to recap my biggest takeaways after the interview, and there were definitely a lot of them in this conversation. My first takeaway here was about always being curious. As we talked about in this episode, it's difficult to go against the grain and study these cases of spontaneous healing that our conventional medical system can't explain. It can be easy to ignore things, such as a case of spontaneous healing, that don't fit our paradigms about how medicine works or even how the world works. But if we always look through a lens of curiosity and ask why, we'll likely be pushed to expand our knowledge and understanding of the world, just as Dr. Rediger has. My second takeaway was about taking care of our immune systems. Our immune systems play such an important role in the development of illness. And as Dr. Rediger talks about, and we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast, there is a lot that we can do to cultivate a healthy immune system. Sleep, movement, and nutrition are important. But the importance of activating our parasympathetic nervous system through things like deep breathing and relaxation, as well as engaging in love and connection, are also important pieces of this puzzle. My third takeaway was about the importance of connecting with identity and purpose. I thought it was super interesting that Dr. Rediger found that nearly everyone he'd spoken with who'd experienced spontaneous healing reported having a deep change in perception about themselves and about the world. This points to the importance of taking a step back from our day-to-day lives and connecting with who we truly are as people, what we want, and what our purpose is in this world, even if we're not facing a life-threatening illness. Making sure that the way we are living our day-to-day lives is consistent with this inner identity and purpose is also important for our health. So I hope you had some great takeaways from this conversation as well.